come to God in prayer before we turn to his word. Our Father in heaven, we thank you and praise you for those words of praise we've been able to take on our lips and lift to you now. We praise you, you are our maker. We thank you, Lord God, that in a, in a, in a, in a reverent way we can even say you are our friend, like the hymn, What a Friend We Have in Jesus. And we thank you in the book of Proverbs, we're told there is a friend who sticks closer than a brother. And we thank you, that's you, Lord. And we give you praise, Lord, that we can bring all our needs to you. We do just pray today, Lord, for our brothers and sisters who are not here today because they're away on holiday. Pray that you refresh them and strengthen them. You know, uh, many of them are facing demanding situations at work and at home. And we pray that the time away will be uh, a, a tonic to them, Lord, and would do them so much good physically and spiritually. We do pray for the boys and girls, Lord, in their new schools and in their new environments. And we pray that you'd comfort them, strengthen them in their faith, Lord, and help them, Lord, as they uh, go in, Lord, into a, a very pagan society, Lord, as young children. We pray that, Lord, you'd be their strength and they'd know what it is to put their hand in yours and go forward in faith. And I pray for the time in the word of God now. Lord, bless us as we open the scriptures. Fill us with your Holy Spirit for this time, Lord, of, of worship with our minds as we, Lord, open the, the word of God. We pray that you'd speak to our hearts through it. And Lord, as that hymn said, when I'm weak, then you are strong. Then, Lord, I look to you in my weakness now to help me with your strength. In Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. We're looking at the life of Gideon at the moment, and uh, if you would turn with me in your Bibles to Judges chapter 7, we'll carry on in our third episode in the story of this great hero of the faith. Judges chapter 7. You may wonder why I call him a hero of the faith. Well, he's listed with those who are heroes of the faith, of course, in Hebrews chapter 11. Okay, beginning of verse 1. Early in the morning, Jeroboam, that is Gideon, and all his men camped at the spring of Harod. The camp of Midian was north of them in the valley near the hill of Moray. The Lord said to Gideon, You have too many men for me to deliver Midian into their hands. In order that Israel may not boast against me that her own strength has saved her. Announce how now to the people, anyone who trembles with fear may turn back and leave Mount Gilead. So 22,000 men left while 10,000 remained. But the Lord said to Gideon, there are still too many men. Take them down to the water and I will sift them for you there. If I say this one shall go with you, he shall go. But if I say, this one shall not go with you, he shall not go. So Gideon took the men down to the water. There the Lord told him, separate those who lap the water with their tongues like a dog from those who kneel down to drink. 300 men lapped with their hands to their mouths. All the rest got down on their knees to drink. The Lord said to Gideon, 
with the 300 men that I lapped, I will save you and give the Midianites into your hands. Let all the other men go, each to his own place. So Gideon sent the rest of the Israelites to their tents, but kept the 300 who took over the provisions and trumpets of the others. Now the camp of Midian lay below him in the valley. During that night, the Lord said to Gideon, Get up, go down against the camp, because I'm going to give it into your hands. If you're afraid to attack, go down to the camp with your servant Pura and listen to what they're saying. Afterward, you will be encouraged to attack the camp. So he and Pura, his servant, went down to the outposts of the camp. The Midianites, the Amalekites and all the other eastern peoples had settled in the valley thick as locusts. Their camels could no more be counted than the sand on the seashore. Gideon arrived just as a man was telling his friend, a friend, his dream. I had a dream, he, said, he was saying. A round loaf of barley bread came tumbling into the Midianite camp. It struck the tent with such force that the tent overturned and collapsed. His friend responded, This can be nothing other than the, word, the sword of Gideon, son of Joash, the Israelite. God has given the Midianites and the whole camp into his hands. When Gideon heard the dream and its interpretation, he worshipped God. He returned to the camp of Israel and called out, Get up! The Lord has given the Midianite camp into your hands. Dividing the 300 men into three companies, he placed trumpets and empty jars in the hands of all of them, with torches inside. Watch me, he told them. Follow my lead. When I get to the edge of the camp, do exactly as I do. When I and all who are with me blow our trumpets, then from all around the camp blow yours and shout for the Lord and for Gideon. Gideon and the hundred men with him reached the edge of the camp at the beginning of the middle watch, just after they had changed the guard. They blew their trumpets and broke the jars that were in their hands. The three companies blew the trumpets and smashed the jars. Grasping the torches in their left hands and holding in their right hands the trumpets, they were to blow. They shouted, a sword for the Lord and for Gideon. While each man held his position around the camp, all the Midianites ran, crying out as they fled. When the 300 trumpets sounded, the Lord caused the men throughout the camp to turn on each other with their swords. The army fled to Beth Sheeta, towards Zerarah, as far as the border of Abel-Meholah, near Tabat. Israelites from Naphtali, Asher, and all Manasseh were called out, and they pursued the Midianites. Gideon sent messengers throughout the hill country of Ephraim, saying, Come down against the Midianites and seize the waters of the Jordan ahead of them, as far as Beth Barah. So all the men of Ephraim were called out, and they took the waters of the Jordan as far as Beth Barah. They also captured two of the Midianite leaders, Oreb and Zeb. They killed Oreb at the rock of Oreb, 
and Zeb at the winepress of Zeb. They pursued the Midianites and brought the heads of Oreb and Zeb to Gideon, who was by the Jordan. Please keep your Bibles open there. Well, in World War II, one of the uh, deciding factors uh, of the victory that we had over uh, the Nazis was uh, the war in Africa. But it didn't look like it was going to be a victory at first because the British army was being badly defeated at the hands of the Nazis. Uh, and that was until there was a change in leadership. The British government decided to take out the man who was in charge of the army there and replace him with another gentleman whose name was W.H.E. Straffergott. And uh, he was flown to Cairo to take command of the 8th Army and lead them. Unfortunately, his plane crashed and he was killed. And so Winston Churchill acted almost totally independently and quickly appointed another man who he had great confidence in, a man by the name of Montgomery. And uh, Montgomery was unknown, largely speaking, but he was the son of an evangelical Christian. And he was brought up in a God-fearing home and taught to pray. And he was also a man of great discipline as well as faith in God. And when he got out to the army in North Africa, he quickly put them into shape and started to uh, uh, bring the boys into line. Somebody who was there at that time wrote these words. He said, It is no exaggeration to say that the Battle of El Alamein was the turning point of the war in South Africa. Sorry, in North Africa. Two or three days after the battle, I found myself in the desert, a few miles behind the advancing Allied forces. On the tailboard of a military truck beside me, a small portable radio was relaying a news commentator's description of the scene at Montgomery's headquarters as he had witnessed it on the eve of the battle. He recalled how Montgomery publicly called his officers and men to prayer, saying, let us ask the Lord, mighty in battle, to give us the victory. And that was how the battle was won. Because that man knew the battle is the Lord's. And uh, he put the, the situation in the Lord's hands. And that phrase, the battle is the Lord's, is the title for my sermon this morning and the theme, I believe, of Judges chapter 7. The phrase, the battle is the Lord, actually comes from elsewhere in scripture. It comes from uh, a different battle in 2 Chronicles chapter 20, when King Jehoshaphat is fighting against armies that have come against him. And he says, this is what the Lord says, do not be afraid or discouraged because of this vast army, for the battle is not yours, but God's. And uh, that was the same sentiment we see expressed in this chapter, in Judges chapter 7. The battle is definitely the Lord's. And the Lord showed that all the way through this story by making certain things happen to give emphasis to the fact that it was him who was giving the victory. You see, what had happened was the Midianites had come against Israel. In fact, the Midianites are known in scripture by another name. They are the Ishmaelites. Uh, and you can read about when Joseph was taken away by the Midianites. It says that they were Ishmaelites. 
uh, and they joined forces with another group who were the Amalekites. And the Amalekites were the descendants of Esau. And you remember they came to attack Israel when they first came out of Egypt and God said he would be forever at war against Amalek in Exodus chapter 17. So you had the sons of Ishmael and the sons of Esau, the two enemy nations and the people groups in the book of Genesis of the people of God. And they have now grown to massive numbers and they've joined forces. And they joined also with the eastern people, the kings of the east, which is an unspecified group. But uh, they also have joined together to come and attack and take away from the Israelites every harvest, their food that they had grown. And that's why we see Gideon threshing wheat in the wine press, you remember, in chapter 6, as we saw two Sundays ago. Well, they've come back this year, and God is going to turn things around now, because Israel has called on the Lord and asked the Lord to deliver them out of the hands of their enemies. And so the Lord is going to do that in this passage, and he's going to show that it is going to be him who does it. I call this the Battle of Armageddon. And I call it that because it's actually a lot of parallels with the Armageddon battle uh, as well. You have the uh, kings of the east coming, Revelation 16. You have two of the leaders captured and cast away uh, and so on, as we see in the book of Revelation. And there's a lot of parallels. Even the same place, the Valley of Jezreel, is the place of Armageddon. So uh, this is the scene. And geographically, it helps to understand where we are. Okay, we're in the north of Israel, uh, we're in this area here, uh, in the Galilee region, and it's a, a vast area, vast plain, it comes in from the Mediterranean, and it leads, if you can see there, the, the, the hills on the horizon, that's the Jordan Rift Valley, you've got the Jordan River down there, and it leads all the way down to the south, down to the Dead Sea. And if you're standing on one of the hills in that plain, this is what it looks like. It is a huge plain, the plain of Megiddo. This is why uh, Napoleon said it's the ideal battleground for a, for a great battle. And uh, this is where they were all camped out. And we read in verse 1 that uh, Gideon and his army were at this particular place here by the hill called Gilead. Now, there actually isn't a hill called Gilead there. It's, it's Gilboa, which was where Saul died, you remember, in battle. But it's called Gilead uh, because they seem to have a twinning thing with their... Because remember, Manasseh was a tribe on both sides of the Jordan. And there's a place over on the other side of the Jordan that's known as the, the, hill, the forest of Ephraim. Well, Ephraim was on this side. So they seem to do the same sort of things that we do uh, in this country with overseas places. And they called it Gilead. Uh, there in name of a, a place further uh, elsewhere. But that's where Gideon and his men were. And Midian was at least in that area there at the bottom of the hill of Moray, about four miles away, and filling the valley. And we're told that there was a massive, massive number had come in here. Uh, according to verse 12, the Midianites, the Amalekites, and all the other eastern peoples had settled in the valley thick as locusts. Their camels could no more be counted than the sand on the seashore. So the camels themselves uh, alone were unnumerable. And uh, it was a massive number. In fact, if you look over in chapter 8, verse 10, you can see uh, a more exact number. Because it says, 
the, the kings, now Zeba and Zalmunna, were in Karka with a force of about 15,000 men, all that were left of the armies of the eastern peoples. 120,000 uh, swordsmen had fallen. So 15,000 out of and 125,000, what's that, 135,000, if I got that right, something like that. Uh, so what a massive army uh, has come to raid the land of, uh, of, uh, of Israel. And it was a very tense moment. But the Lord was going to lead Israel to victory. And I want us to see this this morning because, you know what, we're all in battles at times, aren't we? And, uh, you know, Warren Wisby had that little phrase that he had written on his desk, which had been given him by one of his lecturers at college. And, and he said, as a pastor, remember to be kind to people. He said, everybody is in a battle. And that's true, isn't it? We always think, oh, it's just me who's going through it. Everybody's in a battle. Everybody else is in a battle as well. And we face great battles in life. We face spiritual battles as Christians. In the book of 1 Timothy, we're told to fight the good fight. In Ephesians chapter 6, we're told to take our stand against the devils, the, the devil and his forces. So we are in a battle as well. Maybe it was even a battle just to get here this morning. You know, sometimes it's a battle to come to church, isn't it? And you feel like everything's against you to try and get out the door and get to church and get the family there or uh, get, the, get out the drive and, uh, and get yourself there to church. Well, I want you to know the battle is the Lord's and uh, we need to look to him to give the victory as he did for Gideon. So I want us to see how God showed the battle was truly his uh, in this story. And there's four ways. First of all, he reduced their numbers. Secondly, he reassured their leader. Thirdly, he responded to their strategy. And fourthly, he routed their enemy. Let's have a look at this chapter under these four headings. First of all, God reduced their numbers. And we see that in verses 1 through to 8. I don't know if you are like me. I love the Narnia films, uh, Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe. Uh, And in the first film, The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe, uh, the the queen, uh, the ice queen, uh, I can't remember what her name is, but she's a Jadis. She's massed her army to come against Aslan and his army at the end of the film. It's going to be this great battle. And Peter, one of the boys who's uh, gone through the wardrobe into the land of Narnia, is put in charge of this army to fight the battle. And he looks as he stands <coughs> on the hill next to uh, Orius in the film, uh, the man who's, who's, who's a centaur next to him, and they look down at the valley with all the, the, the Ice Queen's uh, uh, army. And he says, there's so many of them. And Aureus says to him, numbers don't win wars. And Peter says, no, but I bet they do help. <laughs> and you know, every time I see that in the film, I think of this story. And I think you know, that must have been what Gideon was feeling, you know, seeing all those people, all those Midianites, like locusts. I mean, have you ever seen locusts? They're, they're just impenetrable on the ground, aren't they? And you know, how are we, little Israel, going to stand against them? Well, the Lord in the previous chapter had had come on him in the power of the Spirit and he had blown the trumpet and the people had gathered to him. And after he had tested the call of God with the fleece the night before, Gideon now brings his army to the place of battle. And we read in verse 1, Early in the morning, Jerobbaal, that is Gideon, and all his men camped at the spring 
of Harod. The camp of Midian was north of them in the valley near the hill of Moray. Gideon gets up early. And uh, actually, you can trace the 24-hour cycle just about through this story. Uh, as we go, you'll see later on the next point, we're going to be at night, and then we're in the, the, the middle watch of the night, and then it's by time uh, the next morning, uh, by the time the battle is coming to an end. Uh, but uh, God brought Gideon to this place called Harod. Now, Harod is a beautiful place. If you ever go to the land of Israel, this is somewhere you want to definitely try and get to see. Uh, it's, it's the only water supply, which is why I think Gideon made sure he grabbed it. And it's got a beautiful place. And this is the place where Gideon and his men came to get their water. And you can see here, I don't know how we can see it, but that's a big stream that flows out. There's a cave with the water coming out. But this is the, uh, the, the rivery stream, very wide stream that comes out uh, and, and pours its water out of there. And God brings Gideon and his men to this place and when they're camped there and pitch their tents in that place uh, the Lord says to Midian, Gideon in verse 2 you have too many men for me to deliver Midian into their hands now they're already got less numbers they had 32,000 people against 135,000 or so uh, of the enemy and God says you still have too many people and the Lord says why. He says in verse 2, he says, In order that Israel may not boast against me that her own strength has saved her. And this is God's uh, purpose in, in reducing the number that Gideon has down to a smaller number. And the reason he gives in verse 2 is that he wants to make sure that Israel knows it was God who gave them the victory, that the battle is the Lord's. It wasn't them and their skill or their numbers that got the victory. The battle was the Lord's. And so he says, you've got too many people. They've got to know that it's me. One Bible commentator uh, I, I, I heard uh, as I was preparing for this said this. He said that if Israel had won the battle with a large army, they would never have gained greater faith in God and that would have put them in a worse position afterwards than a better one because they would have been self-sufficient and so God said they had to reduce their numbers down and so he tells him how they're going to do it there's going to be a test and uh, he, he well first of all he says to them in verse 3 announce now to the people anyone who trembles with fear may turn back and leave Mount Gilead. And that was in, in accordance, actually, with the rules of warfare found in Deuteronomy chapter 20, verse 8. If you were too frightened, as well as if you just got married or you just planted a vineyard or, or built a house, you could be exempt from uh, military uh, uh, responsibilities. And the reason was, of course, nobody wants to be next to a coward in the battle, do you? Because fear is catching, <laughs> and one person whose knees are knocking sets everybody else's knees knocking. So the Lord said, if they're too frightened, let them go. And Gideon's heart must have sank as 22,000 men <laughs> left, and he was left then with 10,000 men. Surely 10,000 is small enough for the Lord to get the victory. Well, the Lord said, there's still too many people. In verse 4. And so he said, take them down to the water and I will sift them for you there. The King James says, I will try them for you there. 
God was going to put them through a test. He got rid of those who were afraid, but now he's going to test them. And uh, the test is going to be on how careful they are, how watchful they are. He says, if I say this one shall go with you, he shall go. But if I say this one shall not go with you, he shall not go. So Gideon took the men down to the water there. Water There the Lord told him, separate those who lap the water with their tongues like a dog from those who kneel down to drink. Now at this, this place, the, the enemy is in the area and they need to gather water. But the, the test is, will they still be vigilant even when they're doing something that is easy to get distracted with? And the test was how they were going to draw the water. Now, when you see the stream that comes out of uh, Harod, and you see here some IDF there, what are they doing to get the water? Lying on their bellies, putting their heads down to drink the water out. That's the natural way to get the water. But when you're lying down like that, the enemy can strike you. and There's nothing you can do. You're not watchful seeing what's going on. You're not quick to respond. So the Lord said that those who lap up by putting their heads down and those who bow down like that, they're the ones you don't want. And so God called those aside. The ones who he was to keep were those who cupped the water up to their mouths and lapped it like a dog out of the hand and, uh, and were watching, ever ready for anybody who might be around, keeping vigilant in the situation. And the Lord said to Gideon in verse 7, With the 300 men that lapped, I will save you and give the Midianites into your hands. Let all the other men go, each to his own place. So God reduced their numbers down to 300 soldiers. Gideon must have been just about in tears with fear as he thought of the army that he had against the army that was against him. And now all he had was a remnant. By the way, 300 in the Bible is the number of the remnant. That's a number you want to bear in mind. Remember when Noah's Ark was being built? God made it 300 cubics long. It's a, a sign. It was going to keep the remnant safe, the believers who were safe. And uh, we see that throughout scripture. Well, there's going to be an army that's reduced down to 300 so that God gets the glory in this battle. And you know what, dear friends, what a lesson this is for us in our day and age as well, with the battle is the Lord's. You know, we need to remember that our strength is not in ourselves, our strength is not in our numbers, and our strength is not in our own power. Our strength is in God alone. He alone has the power and the ability to save us. There's something good and important for us to realize uh, as we're a, a small church as well. You know, we don't condemn big churches. You know, sometimes big churches are blessed by God. Spurgeon's Metropolitan Tabernacle had to move out of the church to the Surrey Gardens Music Hall uh, in 1859 because God was bringing so many people and revival was happening under his preaching. Now, that's not something to be condemned. That was something to praise God for. It was the first true mega church. <laughs> but God doesn't always bless with big numbers. Sometimes he keeps the numbers small. And I have to say that's been our testimony since we've been here at Union Chapel. We've been working feverishly trying to build the church up with you. And, uh, 
and you've been working with us and you know really we haven't seen the big numbers come have we we're thankful for every church member and every person God gives but God hasn't given massive numbers and yet this place still keeps going it's like the bumblebee you know they used to say the bumblebee it shouldn't fly but it does technically you know the way it's designed it's not aerodynamic and it shouldn't be able to fly but it does and Union Chapel keeps going uh, despite having big numbers, uh, not having big numbers. So this is something for us to remember. And uh, even as we are praying that God would bless us with more coming, because we want people to be added uh, to hear the word, to hear the gospel. You know, the Lord added to the church daily in the book of Acts, and that's a good thing. Let's remember our strength isn't in our numbers. Our strength is in the Lord. Something very important. Sometimes it's a, uh, a, a, a shameful thing, I think, almost, when the church advertises uh, for people. I heard of a church in Nottingham, um, which the Baptist church, a Baptist church, I'm not saying which one it was, but a Baptist church in Nottinghamshire, had a poster outside that said, lonely pe- preacher requires congregation, apply within. Now, I wouldn't want to advertise that to the world. You know, the world loves to mock Christians as it is. I wouldn't want to feed their mockery. Uh, I think we need to keep our faith in the Lord, who is the one who is our strength, and give him the glory that he's the one who helps us to keep going. So let's remember that. He reduced their numbers. Secondly, God reassured their leader. And this is what we see in verses 7 through to 15. Uh, After the men had gone, the 300 had gone, and they'd left their provisions, by the way, their victuals, as it says in the King James, in verse 8. We read in verse 9, During that night the Lord said to Gideon, Get up and go down against the camp, because I'm going to give it into your hands. If you are afraid to attack, go down to the camp with your servant Purah and listen to what they are saying. Afterward, you will be encouraged to attack the camp. So he and Purah, his servant, went down to the outposts of the camp. In my uh, favourite little magazine, uh, for people who like reading, uh, there was a, a letter uh, written in by a lady called lady, uh, Lisa Shasher. And she said this, she said, I teach a self-assertiveness course. At the end of one session... I was heartened to hear of five of, the, five of the men say that they had plucked up courage to invite someone out for dinner. Later that day, I bumped into one of the women from the course. She told me how helpful she had found it. She said, five men asked me out recently. <laughs> she explained, and thanks to your advice, I had the courage to say no. <laughs> Well, do you know what? Sometimes we all need strengthening in our courage, don't we? And God said to Gideon, if you're afraid, and God knew he was, if you're afraid, then go down to the camp. I've got a message that's going to strengthen you. And uh, Gideon was afraid, and he went down. God told him to take his servant Purah with him. Now, I just want to just touch on this as we go past, because Purah's a little person in the story that we only see a couple of times mentioned. But he is a beautiful character. I once heard an old preacher sir, preach a, a message on what he called Pura ministry. He said Gideon was frightened and he went down to the camp with someone who went with him to give him strength. And he said about the blessing of Christians who come alongside someone when they need a friend 
you know, to go to a hospital appointment, you know, or something like that, uh, to draw near and help them. That's what this man Pura did, his servant. His name means beautiful, and what a beautiful character he is. And he reminds me very much, actually, servants in the Bible are often a picture of the Holy Spirit as well, like uh, Abraham's servant in Genesis 24. Well, this one also is like the comforter who Jesus promised would come alongside us uh, and be with us. But he goes down to the camp with Pura, and this is the sovereignty of God, okay? God has a, a message he's going to give to Gideon through some peop- a man who's had a dream. Now, you think, all those tents, 180, uh, how many did we say? I can't remember. How many thousands and thousands it was? Hundreds of thousands down the camp. All those tents, which one? God led him in his sovereignty to the right tent. Not only that, but he led him to the person at the time he had had the dream and was about to explain it. The sovereignty of God is wonderful, isn't it? And so they went down to the, to the tent and somebody said, how could he understand it if they were foreigners? Well, the, the language between the Midianites and the Hebrews was almost identical. So um, it, it's, like, uh, it's like saying us and people from Scotland, you know, or other countries, <laughs> you know, we could understand them just about. Well, uh, he could hear what he was saying. And he said, I had a dream in verse 13. A round loaf of barley bread came tumbling into the Midianite camp. It struck the tent with such force that the tent overturned and collapsed. His friend responded, this can be nothing other than the sword of Gideon, son of Joash, the Israelite. God has given the Midianites and the whole camp into his hands. Now, the symbolism of the dream that was given uh, is fascinating. A loaf of barley bread. Now, barley bread is the, was the lowest, the poor man's bread. Uh, it was the bread that was harvested, uh, I believe, earlier. And uh, it was actually used mostly for fodder. Uh, it was, but it was used for very poor man's bread. You remember it was the barley loaves that the Lord Jesus was given to feed the 5,000 with, wasn't it? And so that was a, a very generous gift from a poor family uh, that they passed that to Jesus to feed everyone with. Of course, they didn't go without, uh, but that was a sacrifice to surrender it. But this loaf of barley bread is such a picture of Gideon because he is the weakest in his tribe of Manasseh and little Israel is so weak against the mighty army of Midian. And so the bread is a fitting picture of him. Bread is a picture of people in, in the Bible as well. You remember the Lord's table. We remember the body of the Lord Jesus by the bread. And uh, there's other illustrations of that as well. The two loaves at, at, at Pentecost representing the Jews and the Gentiles brought in one in Christ. Uh, but the bread is a picture of Gideon. And he sees this loaf rolling down the hill into the camp. Now, when I was a child, I always used to see a loaf, you know, the size of a house rolling down. But it doesn't say that. And this is the irony of it. And this is how we know this is, again, this is the battle is the Lord's, that God is in it. Because it's a little loaf. It's a bap. You know how small a bap is? And everything's getting smaller these days, isn't it, when you buy it? You know, a little bap. And it goes rolling down the hill. And the Hebrew word is it's turning over. And some people think it was spinning like a tornado. But I think it means it's rolling down the hill. 
and it strikes the tent. The tent is a symbol of, of Midian. Uh, they camp down there, and the camp is destroyed. And that's what the, the symbolism of it meant. And the man said the dream, and his friend interpreted it. Now, this is a fascinating thing. What you have here is a Gentile who's had a dream and another Gentile who gives the interpretation. Normally, it doesn't work like that in Scripture. Normally, you have a dream given to Pharaoh, and God raises a Hebrew like Joseph to give the interpretation, or a Daniel to give an interpretation to Nebuchadnezzar. But here, Gideon is to be the person listening, not the person interpreting. And when the man understands it, he's obviously given words that are are from God. This can be nothing other than the sword of Gideon, son of Joash the Israelite. He heard his own name uh, in that interpretation. And he said about how God had given the whole camp of Midian into his hands. And what an amazing thing that is. And when Gideon heard the dream, we read in verse 15, and its interpretation, he worshipped God. It was one of those moments. Reminds me, I, I read in my quiet time yesterday, Genesis 24, about Abraham's servant going to get a bride for Isaac. And you remember when he, he meets uh, Rebecca and she says who her family is. It's the family of Abraham. Says he worshipped God. It was just one of those moments. He realised God had been in this. This was a moment and God had brought him to this place to hear it. And so he returned to the camp of Israel. And called out, get up, the Lord has given the Midianite camp into your hands. I like his humility. He didn't say he's given it into my hands. He said into your hands, Israel. And uh, he was reassured of the victory. What a difference it makes when the leader is reassured that the battle is the Lord's. And, uh, you know, this is something that, that Gideon needed because he was going to be the one up the front to tell the men what to do. You know, uh, there's a writer by the name of James Allen. Years ago, he used to write books, and he said this, the more tranquil a man becomes, the greater his success, his influence, his power for good. Calmness of mind is one of the beautiful jewels of wisdom. It is the result of a long, of long and patient self-control. And I like that. That's interesting, isn't it? You know, uh, uh, the more tranquil a man comes in a situation the more he's influential over the others so God reassured Gideon so that he could go back and with confidence wake up the other men and say God has given you the victory he reassured the leader now this is another way the battle is seen to be God's because God made all that happen for the goodness of his people we need to pray for the strengthening of God's leaders in the church I'm not saying that because uh, uh, I'm I'm especially wanting you to think about me, but it is true for all leaders. And and Paul said to remember those who work hard among you in the ministry and to honour them and to pray for them. Paul himself wasn't afraid to write to church after church in those prison epistles and said, brothers, pray for us. We need your prayers. And we need to pray that God's people who are in leadership have the strength to keep going and to lead the people in the confidence that the battle is the Lord's. You might say, well, John, you know, it's easy to have a confidence when you have a vision like that. I mean, wouldn't it be nice if the Lord gave us, uh, you know, a dream like that to strengthen us? Well, I'll tell you, he already has done. Because this dream was given almost repetitiously 
but in a different form years later to the Babylonian king Nebuchadnezzar. Only this time he didn't see a tent, he saw a statue representing all the kingdoms of the world in their opposition against God. All the ungodly kingdoms of Babylon, Medo-Persia, Rome, Greece and all the others right down to the days of the Antichrist with the ten toes uh, of the ten kings. And what did he see? He saw not a loaf of barley bread but a hand carved not by human hands coming out and it struck the image on the base of the feet and the whole thing was destroyed to powder and the rock became a mountain and filled the world. It was a prophecy given that Christ would conquer the world and here the victory would be his. We have that dream. That's ours from the book of Daniel. So let's find encouragement. We are, believe it or not, on the victory side. Third thing we see here is that God responded to their strategy in verses 16 through to 20. Uh, We read in verse 16, dividing the 300 men into three companies, he placed trumpets and empty jars in the hands of all of them with torches inside. Now, Gideon uh, had asked the men who'd left the the 32,000, the 31,700 who'd left to leave their provisions behind, including torches and uh, trumpets and things, and so he had enough for the 300 men to each be kitted out. And so he, he asks that these be placed in each of the men's hands. And they have these three things. And he says in verse 17, watch me. He told them, follow my lead. When I get to the edge of the camp, do exactly as I do. Now, I've got to say, as I've given the word uh, to you to pray for leaders, that's a word for me. You know, the leader should be able to say, watch me and do as I do. And uh, Gideon's an example there for me. And verse 18, he said, when I and all who are with me blow our trumpets, then from all around the camp, blow yours and shout for the Lord and for Gideon. So God gave Gideon a strategy in his heart. And his strategy was this. Shine the torches, sound the trumpets, and shout the truth. That was the military strategy. Now, you've never heard of a strategy for winning a war like that, have you? Uh, I mean, there is that famous book written by the the Chinese guy um, called The Art of War. I guarantee you it's not in there. But that was the strategy Gideon had been inspired to take. And although we're not told directly that it came to him from the Lord, we can only believe that it did. And uh, this strategy was an unlikely strategy, but it was what was going to be used by God to show that the battle was indeed the Lord's. Now, what was Gideon to do? They were to shine their, they were to take their torches inside the clay pots. Now, when the torches inside the clay pot, it was smouldering. It had it had been lit, but it hadn't come to full light. And so they all had their torches hidden inside, so there was no light visible to the people in the valley around them. They also had their trumpets, the ram's horns, a shofar. And Gideon divided the 300 men into three groups of 100 each. And uh, it was still one army, but there was three parts, a little bit like the Trinity. One God, but three parts. And Gideon's strategy was to say, one group goes around the side, 
Another group goes around the other side, and a group is at the end. So they basically blocked off one end of the valley and, and, uh, and had them round the sides as well. That meant the Midianites would have only one way to flee, which was towards the river, and that was where Gideon was going to send the men of Ephraim later uh, when they joined the battle later on to, to be a, a, a force there to meet them as they tried to flee. And so they moved out around the camp uh, to their different places. That must have been quite a a scary thing to do, moving around the edge of the camp, trying not to be seen with such a a strange-looking group. But they got into place, and then we're told uh, that Gideon and the hundred men with him reached the edge of the camp at the beginning of the middle watch, just after they had changed the guard. The middle watch is between 10 o'clock and 2 o'clock, when everybody's sleepiest and uh, everybody was most prone to confusion. The three companies blew the trumpets, smashed the jars, and grasping the torches in their left hands and holding in their right hands the trumpets they were to blow, they shouted, A sword for the Lord and for Gideon, or the sword for the Lord of the Lord would be a better way of translating it, and for Gideon. While each man held his position around the camp, all the Midianites ran, crying out as they fled. So the three, the three groups, all in unison together, and I, I sort of think as, as the person next to Gideon followed his example, it must have gone like a Mexican wave around the edge of the Midianite camp, and they would have seen the torches lighting up around them in the dark. It must have been quite a, a, a spectacular moment, but quite a a frightening moment for the people in the camp because they couldn't see remember this is why God did it at night because they couldn't see the lack of numbers all they could see was these torches suddenly coming on they couldn't see the size of the army but they knew they were surrounded and they heard the breaking of these pots which was a a very loud sound and then the people shouting declaring the battle cry sword for the Lord and for Gideon And that then led them into a panic. In verse 21, while each man held his position around the camp, all the Midianites ran, crying out as they fled. What a strategy God gave Gideon and how he responded to it uh, with the response uh, among the Midianite camp. You know, sometimes a strange strategy is what God will use. Because it's unlikely. It's, it's not what people are thinking of. Uh, there's a famous story about a, uh, a, an army, the Wei army uh, in China, were coming uh, against Zishan. I think that's how you pronounce it. And uh, they came with 2,500 soldiers uh, against this little town. And as they came against this town... The people had heard beforehand that they were coming. Do you know what they did? They opened the doors. They didn't lock the gates. And when the army came, they came up to the gates and they saw the gates were open and they could see inside a man, a Chinese man, sitting there with two children playing a zither on the floor. And they thought it was an ambush. So this bigger army fled (laughs) and they didn't go in. And this town was spared by this little strategy that somebody wisely had thought of. Reminds me of the the verse in the book of Ecclesiastes about the wise man who saved the city. Well, this is what God gave Gideon 
And this is how it was used. And you know what, dear friends? We need a strategy that comes from God that will be workable, that will work for the glory of God. And we have the same one. We sound the trumpet. What is the trumpet? The trumpet is the sound of the gospel. Remember in the book of Revelation, the angels sounding the trumpets over the world and proclaiming the eternal gospel. And we have a message to sound out to the people. We have clay jars that are to be broken. And uh, the, the breaking of the clay jars reminds us of 2 Corinthians 4. We have this treasure in jars of clay, the light inside us. And this is something that Paul was, I think, drawing on from the story of Gideon when he was talking about all the suffering he was going through and that the churches were going through. Why is God allowing this to happen? Because it's only when the jar is broken that the light shines out. That's when the, the air hit that smouldering torch inside and it hit a big flame. And you know what? Sometimes God allows us to suffer and struggle and go through sickness and illness and difficulties. We say, God, why are you allowing this? Why aren't I getting better quicker? Why am I having to have another operation or something like this? God's saying, your light is shining better than before because now people see it's the Lord in you. It's not you. And the treasure is, is, is shining out. So we need confidence in God that when uh, the jar is broken, the light is going to shine. And uh, we need to shout the truth. The truth is, is, the battle is the Lord's. A sword for the Lord and for Gideon. And I like the fact that they did say a sword for Gideon as well. Because it was Gideon's response as well as the Lord's command. And in scripture we find the human and the divine go hand in hand. And the Bible itself is the best illustration of that. This is the word of God. But every theologian knows it was written by men, inspired by God. So it's the word of God, and it's the word of Paul, and it's the word of Peter. So the two are together. So that's our strategy, to use these things God has given us. And may God show then that the battle wasn't won by clever techniques that are drawn from business companies and things like this, like you can buy on these books for church growth or other things. The battle came. The victory came from God. I'm moving on quickly to the last point, which is that God routed their enemy in verses 22 through 25. And uh, we see that when the 300 sound, trumpets sounded in verse 22, the Lord caused the men throughout the camp to turn on each other with their swords. And the army fled. And I'm not going to try and pronounce all those names again. But they fled down at the end of verse 24 to Beth Barah, which is actually where we come into the New Testament with John the Baptist baptizing at Beth Barah in John chapter 1. And they fled and uh, the Lord caused them to turn on each other in the heat of battle, in the panic of what was going. And then they were pursued after the panic by the forces that Gideon drew out of Ephraim, uh, out of Manasseh, Naphtali and Asher to come and chase them down to the waters there and uh, to defeat them there. And God gave victory over their enemies in, and routed their enemies in a way that was spectacular. The people did the fighting for them. They, remember, the Gideon's men had a trumpet in one hand and a torch in the other. They didn't have a hand free for a sword. So the enemy did the fighting against each other. God made them turn in on themselves. It's amazing how many times that happens in scripture and how 
you know, we can see God can give miraculous victories uh, by making even his enemies uh, defeat themselves. I've got to tell you this lovely story uh, I came across this week about a, a Christian lady in America and, you know, in, in America, in the hot places, I think like down in Mississippi and that, they, these houses are all painted white to def- reflect the heat. Hey, we're going to be doing that now, aren't we? And uh, had verandas outside. And she would come out every morning. This dear Christian lady, she was a, a widow. She didn't have any money. But she would come out every morning on the veranda and she said, praise the Lord. Praise the Lord. And would worship the Lord. And her next door neighbor was an atheist. And he would just be agitated by this woman. And he would say to her, there is no God. And she said, praise the Lord. Anyway, one day the atheist overheard her praying. While she was on her rocking chair on the porch. She was praying to the Lord. And she was asking the Lord to help her. She didn't have any food. Didn't have any money. And he thought, this will be a laugh. And so do you know what he did? He went to the shop and he bought some bags full of food. And the next night he put it on her veranda. And she got up the next morning and there was the food on the veranda. And she said, praise the Lord, you've answered my prayer. You've given me food. Thank you. And the atheist next door was busting his sides. He could hardly talk. He said, it wasn't the Lord. It was me. I did it. The woman held her hands up and said, praise the Lord. You provided the food and you made the atheist pay for it. (laughs) God has a way of routing the enemy, doesn't he? And getting the victory. And that's what we need to look to him to do as well. Gideon's men could never have defeated that many, but he made them turn on each other. And then finally at the end we see Oreb and Zeb, the two leaders, uh, are, are captured at the winepress and the rock, which is an interesting factor because that brings the circle full, the circle full round to where Gideon began thrashing wheat in a winepress uh, and a rock where the Lord met him and uh, called him. And uh, we see how God was faithful to Gideon all the way. So the battle is the Lord's brothers and sisters. And I don't know what you're going into this week, but put your trust in him, keep your focus on him, and remember he, he is sovereign. He'll help you through.